Hi, I'm Sean Nolan, and this is What I'm Grateful For Today. It's art that has carried so many of us through these lockdowns, so to celebrate that, I'm sitting down with Glenn Close's biggest superfan and frequent critic, Mark of Instagram's Dublin Zoe Trope, to discuss what we're grateful for in the cultural landscape. Hi, Mark. Hey, Sean. How are you? I am okay, thank you. It is a grey day today, so the mood isn't too chipper, but it could be it could be raining or snowing. Therefore, it could be much worse. How are you doing today? Fine. Although I must say, I prefer when it's um, inclement. Uh, I think a kind of you know a grey day, a grey mood. Who was it that said that? It was um, I don't know, Jean Brody or somebody. But uh, it kind of. Mm, I don't know the weather totally is out the window for me lately anyway I couldn't give a fig if it's rain or shine I'm just so over it I feel like the rain at the moment is very much controlling my emotions I feel like there's nothing else to control it so fine let the weather do it I feel like I've got that sense of lockdown one nostalgia sounds like a horrible thing to say and so depressing but I do have this sense of lockdown one sunny nostalgia and I want to believe that it's thrilling and random and spontaneous and new well, well it is and it, I mean of course it is a year to the day practically and um you know I was kind of quite sort of you know uh like in Arcadia death is lurking yesterday I was thinking back to this time last year and there was a wonderful spirit it was almost like we were in the blitz or something and everybody was pulling together and it was I liked I really liked the first lockdown I feel I've kind of gone feral in the um two or three or four since um I know, I mean, in England, I mean, you kind of do have the roadmap to reopening to a certain degree, don't you, with the mm. with hairdressers and pubs and things. I think we're still under sort of martial law here. But um, no, I mean, I don't know. I think I don't know how I'm going to cope when it is all over and we are vaccinated. I really am going, not that I ever knew how to deal with people at the best of times, but I really will have to sort of, um, I don't know, take lessons or something. I've gone completely um I don't know I feel like one of those tribes in the Amazon that are suddenly found after years and you know they're maybe I'll be sent to Oxford and be taught to be a gentleman or something I I would say that I I am completely the opposite I used to feel like that a lot but I think I'm a person that's very much driven by subconsciously by dates so I very Mm. much um I think I was talking about this in an episode I did recently actually with James Graham the playwright Mm. saying about um like synesthesia through time and I'm very much a person my birthday was actually this week by coincidence and when oh, it, happy birthday thank you very much and um when it hits something like that I think I subconsciously like reset so when it hit January I had this weird false sense of like the pandemic's only just beginning again like the past mm. nine months have been un- like they don't count we're starting again so I have this I actually feel like this isn't normal again. I've gone back to feeling like, oh gosh, I can't wait for normal to come back. Whereas for a long time, I just felt like we live in this strange, I don't even know how to describe it, but I feel like now I'm very much, like, I'll be absolutely fine. As soon as it ends, I'll be like, cool, accepting it, done, moving on. I don't know if that's a reality, but that's how I feel in my head currently. Mm. No, it's quite interesting. I mean, I feel there's been no demarcation, like, you know, the 1st of September, the 1st of January. I feel it's all one kind of fudge that is. I don't know. And I think there's kind of comfort in that. There's comfort in the known. There's, you know, um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what the future brings in any case. But 
yeah, I feel it's, you know, sort of like a perpetual dystopia we're living in. And mm. um, I really, I really wish there was some demarcation. I know it's awful. You nearly wish Prince Philip would die. And then th- at least that would be the sort of thing to give it the great thrust, you know. <laughs> I, I, I know, th- I know that is so terrible, but you, you do feel, th- I know, I mean, my God, there's been plenty of things that have happened between, you know, the US election and this, that and the other. But you nearly feel there has to be some kind of defining feature of of this era, <laughs> or maybe that's just my. I, th- I like how the, the global health pandemic isn't enough of a defining feature. You need subdefining features to break that down. Into but I think so because otherwise, otherwise things just you know I mean you know it's like the end of the first world war. I mean it would go on to 1920 if you didn't have the defining feature that ended it. <laughs> I mean it would though, and a lot of historians now do say that, but um. But not that I think Prince Philip is going to be the... Um, the I'm, fasc- yeah. I'm fascinated by that, actually. I probably should have chosen that as one of my items. I mean, Miss Markle, who I sort of think of as the Aldi answer to Wallace Simpson. I mean, oh, <laughs> I mean Wallace Simpson was a lady. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know if that quite stands for the Sussexes. But anyhow, sorry, you must stop me now because I will carry on. Anybody who smiles at me, I tell my life story to. I don't know how you managed to be so funny all the time. I, I can't remember what you posted recently on Instagram. For those who don't know, oh, there's a siren going past my house. Um, for those who don't know who Mark is, Mark runs an Instagram account called Dublin Zoe Trope, which my friend and I have been absolutely obsessed with since we were wee, wee spring lambs. When you probably People first days. started it, I remember it being so, I remember it being so new that we could, we sat and read all of them in one of our lunch times at school. It was that new of an account, but we found it absolutely hilarious. Um, and it's just basically commentary on, well, how would you describe it? How would you describe Zoe Territory? Hurling abuse at elderly actresses. Specifically Glenn um, Close, or, or, or at least primarily Glenn Close seems to be the butt of most I jokes. I know, and I feel so, because I am talking about myself, you know, I'm not talking about her at all. I sort of make Glenn out to be this kind of bitter gay man who couldn't make it in musical theatre. And, you know, sort of all the kind of things that really and it's so immature at the end of the day, because, I mean, I am using her as the conduit for every, you know, silly thought that comes into my head. People seem to like it. So, I mean, I keep on doing it. I will stop, though, when she I always think of um, remember that film, Julie and Julia with uh, yes. Maryland, mm-hmm. that Julia Child said something terrible about that woman that, you know, blogged about her. She said that she was an amateur and she was this, that and the other. So if Glenn ever says something to that effect in an interview with, I don't know, Iceland today or something, <laughs> I'll uh, stop then. <laughs> I mean, it's awful. I mean, you see Meryl Streep getting the cover of Vogue and then Glenn gets the cover of WebMD magazine <laughs> and sort of, you know, sponsored by arthritis medication or something. It is but, so um, funny. It is well, so funny. And you, I yeah. don't know how you managed to be so, so densely witty because I always thought it would have been very well thought out by you but you're still just as funny in conversation you are genuinely I can't remember what you posted recently I think it was someone I think if I, I can't remember whose birthday it was it would have been someone's birthday and I remember I commented on it and I think the comment got quite a few likes from a lot of your followers which was just like I do not understand how you managed to make about 65 jokes in about 25 words I don't know how you manage it but it yeah. is so and it's and it is so densely packed with references to other things that only cultured homosexuals and 
and hags will be able to understand it, I think, most of the time. Well, I think there's more culture in a yogurt than there is in Dublin Zoetrope. <laughs> and I, ha- I hate that name, though. That's the other thing. I, that's, I don't know. Well, I do know where I've got it from, but it's such a stupid name. I mean, I would change it to my real name, but then I kind of think, oh, well, people Google me and, you know, it'll come up and I don't really want it, you know, that kind of way. Mm. So that's and that's immature, too, because you're not standing behind it and owning it. But um, it always reminds me of Zoetrim, which is a herbal weight loss supplement. And um, I don't know whether it's Zoetrim or Lipitrim, but there was one of them you had to be weighed in the chemist to get it. And um, the, our chemist had a talking scale. That's, that's how I remember it. It would sort of bleat out how much you weighed. But I remember once going on a tour of the Krakow ghetto and they, however many calories they were allowed a day, and it was less than you could have on Zoetrim. So... It's zoetrope, not zoetrim. <laughs> <laughs> so talking of culture, um, mm. that's what we're coming to talk about today in, in what we're grateful for, uh, because I've got a bit, I think the past few weeks of the episodes have been very serious to the point. Um, then I come on and spoil it for everyone. <laughs> talking about activism and serious life lessons and everything else. And I feel like we need, we need a week of, of brightness. Um, and if there's anything weirder and more discombobulating than a global pandemic, it's an award season for um, homosexuals, I suppose, in the middle of a pandemic, mm. which is the time that I normally find joyous, thrilling. I'm very involved in everything I'm paying attention to. Whereas yes. I don't know about you, but this year I am so disconnected from award season. I find it bizarre that it's even happening. Oh, I do too. And as I said elsewhere, I mean, even I question the, well, I say the mental health, but the mental health of anyone that's invested in award season, because it is such an, you know, it's an asterisk year, if you want to put it that way. And um, I mean, I actually, you know, the little bit I've seen, I mean, obviously the Golden Globes last week, I mean, there's something quite nice about this kind of free form uh, nature of it this year, where it's not so, I mean, because the last couple of years, I mean, you knew the winners in September. Mm. And, ev- and every different show, you know, or organization gave it to the same four people. And it is actually quite nice. I mean, I thought lesbians did very well last week um, between uh, Jodie Foster, of course, who I love, and, um, well, Cynthia Nixon. They were, I mean, it seemed to be a great night for them. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it is bizarre. I mean, it is, I mean, you do feel in a way kind of guilty sort of uh, reading up about it or being interested in any way with everything that's going on. It feels so frivolous and so, so, um, so just kind of, I mean, immature in a way, you know, that you are invested in a little, to a little degree. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think we have to take pleasure wherever we can. And if that is watching, you know, somebody accepting a Golden Globe over Zoom, then you know, so be it. Mm. I feel quite but, nervous, I suppose, of the rest of the season. Not too mm. not nervous is the wrong term, but I feel like the Golden Globes in all sense of the word, as much as they're enjoyable to watch, and I actually thought the ceremony was one of the best put together Zoom ceremonies that has actually been throughout the whole mm. time. And I agree with you. I really enjoyed seeing personal aspects like Jodie Foster in bed and things like that. There were so many nice little touching, touching moments. Um, I worry about things like the Oscars that are going to feel... The whole joy of the Oscars, as much as it's funny to see who wins and who doesn't and who cares. And see Glenn losing whatever happens, you know, the eighth time. Which is always a thrill. Um, <laughs> it's Part of it is the glamour of everyone being there and, and feeling like feeling like this massive sense of FOMO and gosh, aren't glamorous people glamorous? Whereas I don't mm. think that will 
it's hard to demark what's different about each one because as much as the Golden Globes were done really well, they were like the Emmys 2.0 in my head. They mm. weren't too dissimilar in spirit, and that isn't normally the case. Mm, well, I uh, on two points. The first one, um, the Screen Actors Guild Awards are having the novel approach of telling the winners in advance who has won. Um, recording their little snippet and then just airing all those speeches so that the people will know they have won, but um, obviously the public won't until whatever night they go out. But on the Oscars, uh, Billy Eichner, you know, the great Billy on the street, uh, he had an idea on Twitter, which I thought was marvellous, which was to have them at the Hollywood Bowl. And, you know, at least you could have outside, you could have uh, much more than in, a, in, in an auditorium. Because, I mean, you're right, you do want to see that. And even if they are wearing masks, I mean, at least with the Emmys, uh, when you had, say, the Schitt's Creek people together. And I can't tell you how much I love seeing Dan Levy lose last week because I just, <laughs> you just sort of, I mean, I know that's so terrible. And I, as, I've, as I often say, you know, if Dan Levy was straight, I'd be the greatest fan of him in the world. <laughs> I sort of feel, you know, it's a bit like Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, yeah. if Lin-Manuel Lin was... Um, you know, on the other bus, if he was gay and had written Hamilton and had done all these successes. I mean, you would qualify it in some way and grudge it slightly. I mean, you almost feel comfortable with it that he <laughs> is, you know, he's married and has children. Well, not, I mean, married to a woman, obviously. But um, yeah, it, um, I don't know, it's a nice distraction, this award season. But at the same time, I mean, it feels so low stakes. I mean, even at the, mm. the people that will win this year, I mean, you nearly feel you should give them chocolate Oscars. They won't be real ones, you know. So, you know. I think there's also, have... I imagine there's also a sense of, um, there's probably also a sense of... I don't well, know. it's like it's it's like Marie it's like Marie Antoinette dressing up as a shepherdess, you know. It's that kind of, um, <laughs> you know, it's the kind of um, uh, the triviality of it, you know, it, and the fact that um, I mean, in, in most years, you know, the amount of flying these people do, the amount of aggressive campaigning. I mean, Laura Dern last year burned a small chunk of the rainforest away, <laughs> you know, to win for that. <laughs> that film, um, the, you know, and she wasn't even great in it at the end of the day, Marriage Story. But um, I think it's kind of the, um, yeah. And I, the other thing is, I think this year we're going to have a lot of, I, I don't mean this disparagingly in, in one at all, but I think there'll be, you know, they'll go woke for broke, mm. you know. And that isn't a bad thing, of course. But I think, you know, they do feel... I mean, certainly with some of the Globe winners. I mean, for example, Andrew Day, I don't think anyone saw that coming. No, for, that was for very random. For playing Judy, Judy Holiday. No, <laughs> for playing Billie Holiday. But um, she's meant to be marvellous in it. The film isn't meant to be much, but she's meant no, to be great. No, the film wasn't much, but she was very good. I, I enjoyed mm. her, but the film but it's, nothing it's to a bit, about. Exactly. It's like poor Cynthia Erivo last year, who, I mean, I think Viola Davis and Kate Winslet would have thought her too thirsty for awards mm. but I mean when she got in for playing Harriet Tubman but that's the thing I find with a lot of these biopics now I mean I always think you know if Vladimir Putin played Freddie Mercury or Judy Garland he'd he'd win the Oscar on the name recognition yes that's very you know, true 
it's it's and it's it's and then the sad thing is a really good performance will come along and it'll be oh, we've done that like um like uh taron egerton as elton john i thought that was a fantastic mm-hmm. performance and i don't know that that made me very angry when that didn't make its way from the globes to the oscars that was frustrating. yes and that that dreadful one with the dentures the year before supposedly playing freddie mercury i mean i mean that should never even have gotten in mm. so it is I think uh, and the thing is, I think nowadays we look back on previous performances and disparage them, like, for example, Marion Cotillard as Piaf, which I think is such a, uh, I mean, that's one of the best performances to ever win, I think. But people do think of it in terms of like one of those karaoke style performances that have been now, even though Miss Day did her own singing, I believe. Mm. I think it's a, it's a lot of fuss, I think, for a film that I can... I can log in and watch on Netflix. That's what feels mm. like a, a big thing for me. And, and coming on to the, the first thing that I'm feeling grateful for today, culture-wise, um, it's something we were discussing last night, which is Nomadland eventually going mm. to Disney Plus in the UK. Yes. Um, because I think as much as I'm saying that this is a lot of awards fuss for films that I can very easily stream, Nomadland is, in my opinion, perhaps the most inaccessible film I've seen advertised in a very long time, especially even Mm. awards-wise. I feel like from a marketing perspective, I don't know many people that would go and see that film unless they were fussed about awards perspective. I wouldn't say it has much general commercial appeal. I don't know how you feel about that. And the idea of Mm. it then being on on April 30th, being the banner homepage of Disney Plus seems Mm. very much in stark contrast to how that film wanted to be portrayed, I imagine. and I think I'm I think I'm grateful for that. I think I'm grateful for the fact that many people will be able to tune into that film out of sheer boredom, which is, is just a harsh thing to say, because I don't think many people would be running to it's a kind of film that wouldn't play in my local like multiplex. It wouldn't play mm, there. Yeah. to see it. So therefore the idea of it being on people's Disney Plus homepages alongside The Simpsons, Family Guy and and Moana seems like a very <laughs> strange contrast to what I thought it was going to end up being. I know. Well, they scrambled my Disney Plus because, you know, the way I, I don't know who owns the account, but I have the account on it. <laughs> and um, they launched that new thing where they have, you know, Star, is that the name of it? But they have Desperate yep. Housewives on it. And I logged in and I was, you know, logged out. They obviously thought whatever day that launched will, you know, log everyone out and cull the people that aren't paying. But on the, ter- on ter- uh, you know, with regards to Nomadland, I loved Nomadland and I was so surprised because I thought something that is so praised I'm going to have to qualify it and find fault with it somehow and I absolutely adored it um I I you know made silly jokes that you know like Ken Loach would find it depressing (laughs) but um but I don't think so and I think actually a lot of it the treat you know the treatment of Amazon in it for example is getting a lot of attention now that it sort of makes it out to be benign you know, that this woman is sort of um, choosing this life. It isn't that she's been pushed into it out of economic necessity. And I think the difference between that and, say, Hillbilly Elegy with Glenn, where it's, you know, that kind of terrible Republican mentality of it's your fault, you deserve to be poor, you know, work harder. You know, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And I did immaturely think, I wonder, is that because it has, as you said, the indie cred, it has the Asian female director, and of course, Frances McDormand, who I think is so smart, because 10 years ago, you'd have totally expected her to be playing uh, ants and district attorneys in Marvel movies. Mm. And she played Olive Kittredge and she's played Olive Kittredge three times now. And this third time, I think, in Nomadland is wonderful. I really think if we'd have known this was coming, we'd have all backed um, Inertia Ronan in, a, <laughs> in a 2017 instead of um, the billboards. 
but on the on the terms of it being on Disney Plus, I think that's wonderful that it will be seen. I mean, my parents who you know aren't um, you know cinephiles by any means, they saw it uh, you know a few weeks ago and they loved it too. So I think. I think it is good that it will reach that wider audience that, as you said, will, would never in a month of Sundays um, seek it out either at the multiplex or. But that's the kind of the other element of it with Disney Plus and with Netflix. I mean, there is so much content. I mean, no wonder it falls through the cracks. And there are so many worthy things that, you know, at the end of the year, the, the 30 films or whatever, we deign awards worthy and that have that cachet so many um, just fall through the cracks, as it were. And um, I think Nomadland really is, I think they've made so many mistakes, but Nomadland is so worthy. And so I think anyone that sees it, it is, it's only a good thing. I wish it had gone to Amazon Prime Video. That would have been a beautiful sense of irony if they could have managed to sell it onto them. But obviously it is a, it is a searchlight product, so it would end up going to Disney. So, But talking, mm-hmm. of, but talking of Prime Video, um, let's talk about the woman that you're feeling great for at the moment in culture because she her new films on prime video which i thought was on netflix but it's in netflix yes in netflix, i, I did too. Prime I video to, in the uk which is makes I, no I, sense to me but okay I, I i know i went to look for it on netflix the other evening and then i couldn't find it and i thought oh but um yes rosamund pike i'm fascinated by her i mean I, I mean it just so happens that she has her triumph now and um i care a lot the jill biden story but <laughs> um <laughs> but but uh, I think she's wonderful. I think she's like truly scrumptious from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with a chill at the core. <laughs> I think she's, um, and you know, I've started following her on Instagram and she has like a mindfulness app that she's launched. I mean, I just think she's so fabulous. I, I really can't believe she exists. I think she's, um, and she's, you know, so erudite, so so well-read and learned when you listen to her speak. It's it's um it's really someone I'm so grateful for is Roz Pike. I just and that name, it's just, you know, I think it's like something PG Woodhouse would have come up with. You <laughs> she know, she does have a good name, whether you're quite right. I, I think she's so random. I hadn't paid much attention to her ever. And obviously then everyone started paying attention to her after Gone Girl, which is mm. fair enough. And then everyone stopped paying attention to her once again. And then now she's billed as the star of obviously is the star of I Care a lot, but seeing posters of her with her name above the title, etc felt so alien to me because I thought, when did we give this woman the time of day? I really don't remember when we ever thought about her in any context whatsoever. I'm clearly going back on why you're grateful for her. But Mm. I don't remember ever deciding with people that we were going to put our power behind Rosamund Pike. Well, the first thing I really, I mean, obviously I probably saw her in the Bond thing back in the day, but I remember seeing her in in, uh, an education with Carey Mulligan. Mm. This was when Carey Mulligan was having her Star is Born moment. And I have to say, I do like Carey Mulligan, but... um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, until the promising young woman, I really thought, you know, she was put out to pasture, as it were. But I think Carrie is back. But Rosamond was the one that I was really fascinated by. Um, and then I saw her in Maiden Dagenham and all these things. But um, Gone Girl, I thought, was such a wonderful uh, debut. I mean, it really was this kind of a Scarlett O'Hara casting mm. it. You know, a bit like the, um, the uh, Dragon Tattoo. I mean, it's like that joke, you know, about all those awful sort of mid-2000s crime novels, Gone Girl on the Train with the Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> um, and, I mean, you were so grateful that it went to, the, a Ros- to Rosamond and it was that star-making term, that it wasn't Reese Witherspoon who produced it, who I don't really like. You know, it, it, I don't know, you just like seeing that happening to somebody that's paid their way. A bit like Jessie Buckley now, who I adore also. I mean, ha- yes, seeing I like her... 
see see seeing her have that success because you know it's been earned i mean i really have such a puritanical view of who has earned their way and who has just sort of you know i would agree with that i really feel that i mean you talking about like star debuts and, and i mean she's an enormously privileged don't get me wrong i mean mm. you know I don't mean for one minute that she was sort of, you know, found in the gutter and then was, you know, like... <laughs> Plucked from obscurity, yeah. Mm. No, I, I agree with you though about the sense of someone feels more... I have a lot more respect for the random people when they've earned their place. I remember one of those people that wrote Stardom, you talking about Inertia Ronan, as you like to call her, <laughs> in Ladybird. One person I absolutely was obsessed with, for I still am, I love her, is Beanie Feldstein. I think she's mm, brilliant and I yes. adore her. But my whole opinion of her went down the drain a little bit when I realised that she was Jonah Hill's sister. And I realised that it wasn't quite as plot from obscurity as I thought she was, because I thought she came from nowhere. Because I remember her being in the ensembles, she was a very lowly character in Bette Midler's Hello Dolly. Mm, yeah, she was uh, mini fame. And I thought she kind of came off of that and then found great fame in Ladybird, obviously, and then went on to Booksmart, which is a film I absolutely mm, love. Mm. And then that um, kind of not that great Catelyn Moran movie that was on Amazon Prime that I don't particularly enjoy. <laughs> I thought she came from nowhere and I thought it was brilliant. But then when you find out that she, because I, I remember for a long time, I, I found out because I described Booksmart to one of my friends as being the female super bad. And I was like, she's a bit mm. like Jonah Hill. And someone was like, well, that's funny you say that because they shared, well, they didn't share mm. the womb at the same time, but they both came from the, the same womb, I believe, which I find very <laughs> funny because mm. that makes a lot of sense now. But uh, coming back to what you're saying, um, it is, it's funny how much of an opinion I weigh on on those kind of, I suppose, cult actresses for the time being. They're not mm. particularly widely famous, I suppose. Uh, how much I weigh on their, the way they've earned their place, I suppose, or, or how much they've had to work for it and how many. Well, I mean, look at Glenn. I mean, Glenn was 35 before she even made a film. And you just sort of think, oh God, there's hope yet, you know? I think it's because you always kind of think, I know it's so immature, but it's like, well, if I'm going to make a film before I'm 35 and I'm going to have eight or seven Oscar nominations and um, be disparaged by some dreadful fetal gay somewhere on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, it'll be, it'll be called Lublin's Zoetrope. It'll be a, po a pole somewhere from the crack up from the ghetto. No, I don't mean that at all. <laughs> I'm talking of, um, talking of people that we end up admiring. I mean, it's your your star, I suppose, as much as you may disparage her as obviously Glenn. And one person that I absolutely live for, which is so basic and common of me, is is Miss Streep. Um, mm. I adore her Street, with everything. Streep Walker. It was actually Streep Walker. <laughs> Zanuck made her change it. Um, no, I, I, do, I do quite adore her with, with everything. And I always have done. Um, yes, I do too. And I mean, I know. Mm. It's not a cliche. She is brilliant. And she is one of those few people that I believe has somehow had a hell of a lot of praise and maybe not, still not enough. It will never be enough. A bit like Sondheim. Mm. People say about Sondheim, he'll never have enough adulation, even though he is probably overrated. I do believe the same thing about Meryl, that how can... Well, that's kind of what I'm saying I'm grateful for, really, is this woman is the most celebrated actress of our of our times. Mm. That's There's no question about that. No one can deny that fact. And the fact that she doesn't, A, stop and really seriously choose what she's doing to retain that, uh, I think plays to strengths of her ability. I mean, think about this pandemic so far. She did that Steven Soderbergh movie that I don't think has come out in the UK yet because I haven't seen it yet. The one on oh, the it's marvellous. I mean, uh, I looked at, I watched it illegally online. I will be watching that at some point because she seems pretty, it, I want to see it, her in that. With, it's with terrific. Candace but Candace Bergen, oh my goodness, that performance of Candace Bergen is amazing. I mean, it absolutely, as I 
I got into trouble for saying the two um, performances I love were Berg and Burston. And, <laughs> and no, that isn't the camp where Anne Frank died and that was Butlins. But <laughs> no, I don't mean that. God, I'm really so, t- I don't know. I'm just, I think I must have inhaled the fumes of something this morning. <laughs> but um, but not only has she done that, but I think she did She did the prom, this, this mm. kind of lockdown, which yeah. is... A movie that I am ashamed to say I did quite enjoy. As I, I liked thought, it. I, I liked feel terrible for thinking I really enjoyed it, but I did enjoy in, in a way that was so ridiculously funny. It was almost like mm. it was bordering on the Mamma Mia of it all. Of course, another yes. brilliant Meryl turn. But it's the fact that she can, obviously she is such a chameleon, but she can go through these roles and they are ridiculous, like absolutely mm. stupid. But somehow well, she comes she, off she, as being fantastic i mean the prompt i mean that is a role that could have if they given it to someone else i can't think of who else they would have given it to could have absolutely hammed up to the point of like come on now mm. when in reality i watched it and i thought if she actually got major nominations for that i wouldn't be offended that was she was actually really she made that somehow so so serious yet ridiculous at the same well, time well i i, I re i really thought that maybe glenn would have gotten that part because um there was a charity performance of the play and Glenn and Andrew Rannells and a few different people that, you know, ended up being in the film were at it. And I was thinking, oh God, maybe now. And I remember doing a like fake poster and it was not Glenn, not Glenn, not Glenn with, you know, in the prom. But I think if Glenn had played that part, she'd have played it like Nancy Reagan. You know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had, but but Meryl, I think, you know, I sort of think of her as, you know, since, probably since maybe maybe the hours and adaptation I mean I think they're really the last time you can call her an actress I mean since then she's kind of been playing Jennifer Saunders as Meryl Streep that's you know a what I mean. very good way of describing it that is so mm. true but she's had so much fun and I yes. think that's why she's so and, enjoyable is there such yes. a there is such a lot of work to go back to as you say like serious actress work you can still go and enjoy and rediscover mm. and it's still enjoyable yet now you just get to have fun i mean we should like ricky and the flash what mm. in what world would meryl streep have done that 20 years before mm. now there was a point where she obviously is just throwing caution to the wind and said fuck it i'll do anything i want to do and mm. then i mean i mean she does the most random and almost forgettable thing i mean big little lies is a great example of when gosh i mean you when when big little lies couldn't have got more late teen gay for me like that was a real like gay turning point in my life I mean I was full of Laura Dern and, and Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon and then I get Meryl Streep thrown in my mouth as well I thought that was quite wonderful and the same as I think about like the laundromat the previous Soderbergh mm. film she did which which is appalling appallingly which was, offensive which, that term just terrible and Blackface, I don't know how she gets I mean, away it, with but, it she she but, did and I don't know how she gets away with it but Which if that was, was anybody else, you know, every subsequent appearance, the, the blackface would be um, brought up. Over. And if Glenn had done that, to put it back into your terms, then I think we would have taken a great turn in. Well, I don't... We would have like, gone on for that for ages, I think. Well, as, as you know, as all these kind of um, uh, woke gays write under my post that are just meant as a joke, they write false equivalents, false equivalents. And it's a bit like, you know, saying that if it was Glenn or if it was someone else. But the thing about it is nobody gets a look in apart from Meryl. No actress mm. over 45 gets a part unless Meryl has turned it down. And you do think, I mean, of course, you'd love to see Jessica Lange. Or, I mean, there's so many parts recently. But as you said, they are so frivolous. Would you really want to see, I don't know, um, Jessica Lange playing um, the, uh, Mary Poppins's cousin, for example? Oh, my gosh, or, I forgot um, she even did that. But but I think, I think everybody just, forgot I think that. quite a few. <laughs> yes, true. Everyone did forget poor Emily Blunt as, as Mary Poppins. But um, 
well, I don't think any of us are particularly sad that we chose to forget it. But um, I feel like people like Jessica Lange sold themselves out. I mean, I, I think when she dragged she out her, American she... Horror Story yeah. and then hammed it up as Joan Crawford, which, having said that, I did mm. love you, so I can't talk too far down on that. Yeah. But I think Jessica Lange did... She sailed down the wrong path, I think. And then if she went to go and do The Prom next with Ryan Murphy, everyone would be... I think then she really would have lost credibility. Whereas mm. I think the Merrill effect was doing Mamma Mia... And somehow mm. everyone thinking, well, that's brilliant and ridiculous and funny. Let's laugh with Meryl. And so well, Devil Wears Prada really was the uh, t- uh, the toe well, in the water sort well, of thing. Having said that, so I watch Devil Wears Prada every single birthday of mine. I don't know why it's become my birthday tradition. So I watched mm. it this week again, obviously, as yeah. I do every year. And I had a moment this year, whereas for many years I've thought like, this is, this is silly. But actually I watched it this year and I had a moment where I thought, this is... Meryl Streep and it'd been a long time since I'd watched it and re-remembered that that is actually Meryl Streep paying her mm. and I actually thought I don't think this is as hammy as I once used to think it was it genuinely is somehow quite serious which is funny for as you were saying earlier on about people playing real people and becoming so almost cliched these days um I mean she basically played obviously she played a mirror of Anna Wintour there there's no doubt about that but I think somehow I don't know. It didn't feel hammy to me in any way or ridiculous. It felt genuinely quite convincing and and, and mm. quite serious. I don't take that one as one of her hammy ones, personally. Mm, I don't either. And I think it's interesting that she is playing a facsimile of, of Anna Winter, not playing Anna Winter herself. Because I think a lot of performances, for example, I mean, if, if Renee Zellweger hadn't been playing Judy Garland, but been play, had been playing some drug adult singer of, you know, in a cabaret in London in the 60s, it would be much more effective. That's very true. It was the fact that, you know, the trolley song was lumped in there. It was suddenly Judy. Um, The same with the Bette Midler. She played uh, uh, not Janis Joplin in The Rose. Mm. But, you know, it it had that kind of interesting... I think there is something to be said, but I think Anna Winter has so piggybacked on that film the last 15 years. Mm. I mean, she she plays up to the, the meme of it, as it were. Um, and I think she's she's meant to be terribly problematic now, Anna Winter. I forgot if we've cancelled her yet. But um... no, she's got, she's got the Meryl in the laundromat effect. I think she keeps doing oh, right. things and apologising a little bit enough mm. that everyone's like, we still bow down to the. Mm. To the I mean, so Anna fa- Winter so fa- is, is the Meryl of fashion, isn't she? I suppose yeah. in many respects, it makes sense that they were once paired. I loved the rumour that the uh, Obama administration were going to make her the uh, British ambassador in about 2012. <laughs> Obviously, that was invented by somebody with, you know, a, fer- a fertile imagination. So going on from our American loves and everyone, I mean, talking of British ambassadors, I think our last few pieces today are actually quite British commentary, which is... Mm. Um, a complete turn from the rest. And the next thing that you're feeling grateful for is another thing I rewatched this week, actually, and do also have a lot to say about. So, so why don't you introduce it and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. About It's a Sin. Let's talk about It's a Sin. Well, yeah, I, you see, I don't know. I don't know anybody in it, so I don't know why I'm kind of disliking it. But I, f- I found it a little bit unfinished or something, unformed. I... Um, I mean, I adored Russell T. Davies' last series, Years and Years. Oh, Did you see that? Fant- I've watched that about and four times, I think. I, I have too. I mean, sadly, that. sadly, it's nearly anachronistic now because, yeah. you know, with, I mean, I think we, we'd rather be living under Emma yes. Thompson's dictatorship. <laughs> but, um, and, and very few people have seemed to see it. I mean, you know, nobody that I know has. I've seemed to see. Years and years. I mean, oh, all... well, well, I think maybe a lot of my friends, to be fair, I probably forced it down the throat and we've mm. all watched it together. They're, but they're, I agree, not in the wider I mean, public. Yeah, they're all watching. It's a sin. It's almost like um, 
it's this year's entry that if you watch it, it'll admit you to some kind of intellectual club. But um, no, I mean, for, I, I think this will dovetail with what, you, what you're going to say, your last item. But I think, you know, if it, if it does bring awareness, if it does to this younger generation, then of course it's enormously effective. But um, I, I actually haven't even finished it yet. I'm waiting for the last episode. Everyone is telling me about Keely Hawes's monologue. Oh, yes. the, last the, last episode, the last episode is, is, is very good because I think it dipped a bit by number four. I was mm. a bit like, mm, what's going on? Number five really wrapped it up for me. I mean, I've watched it. This is, I've watched it my third time I watched it this week. So I've watched yeah. it a few times. Um, I am big on rewatching those things. And I'm a huge Russell T Davies fan anyway. Mm. I've watched every single thing he's ever done. And yeah. I've loved it mainly because very non-homosexual reference I suppose out of our conversation but because um when he did Doctor Who that was my pinnacle of childhood obsession and that was what mm. made me love television and whatever so then everything else he's ever written somehow feels in that same comforting spirit to me because I well I, for me it was stories. it was uh, queer as folk I mean I remember looking, wonderful yes I mean I, I remember when I was you know about 19 watching it on um four on demand as it was called then or all four on a phone and just adoring it and c couldn't believe it again I say this an awful lot about things but couldn't believe it existed it was just so because the references I mean the references to you know Gladys Pugh and to um Isla St. Clair it, it was in many respects the, it was it was Dublin Zoe trope as a tv show in the same but, sense as it's so in, packed with those references but even in like, wow. even in years and years I always remember there's a scene in years and years where um somebody's going by on a bicycle and you can see the theatre in the background and it's something like, you know, Beverly Callard is Mame, you know, and it's just put in as an in-joke and it's just, oh my God, how does anybody think of that? Russell T Davies does it for the gays. I think that's... that's I know. I'd love he's for, directly doing it I, for the gays, he's doing I, it. I'd love for him to... I, I must try and get him to follow me. Maybe I can, you know, get a job as a script consultant on Years and Years Part 2, Viv Rook's Revenge. <laughs> but I... Uh, it's a, Yeah, watching It's a Sin for a Third Time. It was funny. I watched it once and I loved it. I watched mm. it a second time. And as you say, I started to see not pitfalls in it, but I guess when you watch many things a second time, you start to see them for being, if they're a bit more simple than you thought they were, they maybe are a bit simple. The third time I watched it was last week, which was with my boyfriend who yeah. for, uh, only subjects to him that, that you won't understand and many, maybe many people won't listen, won't remember, is that he only really came out to everyone in the world when we got together earlier on last year he was out mm. with many friends and everything but it became like a serious thing in his you know purview I suppose at that time and in many respects he has no idea about a lot of gay history at all and we discussed it's a sin in passing because his mum had started watching it and I was talking about it with him and he had no real concept of the reality of the AIDS crisis which was at first odd to me I was like how can you have avoided that but then I thought but wait who told me that? I had to find that one out for myself. So I mm. suppose, why would you know that? And then I watched it with him and we watched it all in one go. Mm. And then I realized the importance of It's a Sin and why a lot of my friends had really enjoyed it. Uh, for not only things like the AIDS story about it, because quite a lot of my friends knew about that. But one thing I know that I've talked about a lot with my friends is the one very throwaway bit, I think it's in the third episode, where Richie goes to get a mortgage and they ask mm. him a series of questions, basically making sense of the fact that if you are in any way homosexual, you will not be having a mortgage. Mm. And there were moments like that dropped through throughout. And I think there was one moment, the long haired, I cannot remember the long haired boy's name in the show, but he had a monologue, I think in episode four, perhaps, or maybe even in the final episode about things that gay people couldn't do at that time. I think it was in the late eighties, that point, the early nineties. And there were those moments, those moments that really captivated the people that I knew that watched it, that made them realize, gosh, 
I didn't know yeah. that that was the case. And there are so many things that obviously that I've come to learn through my own research, I suppose, and thanks to the internet over time about the gay experience through time that I'm like, well, I knew that and I know that was mm. horrible, but so many people didn't. And I think in that respect, even though I, I think it's a bit like how... Well, it's polemical in a way, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And I think if you are so close to the subject matter, you're always going to... It's what you said about justify, you know, things have hype, so I have to justify that they are actually going to be mm. going to try and find flaws in them. I'm gay, so of course I'm going to be sat in there thinking, like, well, that's not quite what I want to be, you know. And I think it's very easy to nitpick like that when you are that, when you actually realise this is supposed to be mm. secular well, entertainment it, on Channel 4. And for many it, people, this is a bit like their modern day queer as folk, I suppose. This mm. mod, this tent pole, I suppose, of talking about homosexuality. Yeah. Well, it's not even, I mean, I think if something has a dramatic argument, if the dramatic argument or something is sound, I don't necessarily pick holes in it. I mean, I know you could in terms of in terms of different things, but um, I mean, I can't stand people, for example, that, you know, run on about historical inaccuracies and things. Mm. I think if the film or the series has the strong dramatic uh, thrust, then, I mean, you can't grudge the fact that, you know, a railing appears in it or something that wouldn't have been there in the time of Queen Elizabeth or whatever. These are the sort of inane things people pick up on and it absolutely drives me to lally, yeah. you know? I agree with I you. Think, I, I think it's trivial whining, frankly. I know that the irony of me saying that is, an, is a bit... <laughs> yes, is a little bit. Um, but but I, I agree. I mean, if it serves the purpose of the, the what you're mm. trying to tell me, then it serves the purpose mm. of what you're trying to... I didn't come to this for a history lesson because by no. that logic, we don't get many things. Do you know what I mean? We, mm. There are so many. We, we, where do we move? It's like when people argued about this is a very random, I suppose, theatre cross comparison, but when people were talking about the globe and talking about, do we keep it as restoration Shakespeare or do we keep mm. Emma Rice on for modern day Shakespeare? I think those kind of conversations irritate me because I don't need. Well, uh, well, th well, this kind of goes back to another thing I was kind of thinking of was about straight actors playing queer roles and the idea that, you know, for a performance to be effective in a, from any perspective, it must hew close to the actor's own experience. Mm. And I do not buy that for one minute. For context on that point that you're about to make, Russell, for those who don't know, Russell T Davies, after this show came out, made, has made very strong points of saying that he doesn't believe straight actors should play gay roles, right? That's what you're referencing mm. to, isn't it? Yeah. Just well, no, well, not exactly to him. I mean, I just was thinking it anyway, but um, I mean, I think there's two, there's two problems. The, I mean, well, the, the kind of counter problem is that the unfairness, the inequity of queer people being unable to tell their own stories straddled with, I don't know, you know, Matt, or a straight actor playing a gay role and winning an Oscar for it or something. People just focus on those base things. They can't seem to, there's no nuance. There's no um, subtlety to it at all. It's all very one-sided. So it's hard to even broach the topic without turning into somebody's, you know, Tory voting uncle. Mm. You know, it, it it really does feel very kind of black and white. But I mean, I applaud Russell T Davies for inclusion. I mean, years and years was the exemplar for inclusion and not just of, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, people of different descents. I mean, people with disabilities, people with everything. It, it was so wonderful to see, you know, it, it really was. Yes, I would agree with that 100%. So going on to the final thing we're going to talk about today, and the, and the last thing I'm feeling grateful for is a very specific show as well in the UK, which is something that I would never would have thought I would have ended up being grateful for, and that is RuPaul's Drag Race UK, mm. which I am very surprised about. Now, my Drag Race history is thus. 
my friends, I have a couple of friends, um, particularly my friend Abby, who was in last week's episode, who has always been absolutely diehard obsessed with American RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. So through time, I've watched a few episodes, obviously, and I have never enjoyed it. I've never enjoyed a single episode. I thought it was too polished, too bitchy, irritating, but not in a, like, not bitchy in a funny way, just bitchy in a way that was not even reality telly funny. It just felt uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, um, I don't watch it either. And I found, I've actually, in brutal honesty, always found drag queens quite boring. And I find mm. the idea of like just lip syncing, I still find the lip sync draining. I don't like that at all. I don't find it entertaining in the slightest. So even in the UK one, I, I sometimes avert my eyes for those few moments yeah, because yeah. I don't enjoy it. But when it came to the UK, I didn't watch the first season because I, I you know, assumed I didn't like it. And then the second season was coming on earlier on this year. And one of my friends called Barbara, um, she told me that she really enjoyed season one and was talking to me all about it and why she enjoyed it. And she said she'd watched a few episodes of the American one and didn't enjoy that, but loved the British one. And then my friend Abby also said she hates the British one, but quite likes the American one. Doesn't hate, but you know, doesn't enjoy it. Mm. So I thought, well, if it's different, then I maybe will have an opinion on it. So the second season came on and I started watching it. And I have absolutely loved it every single week. Mm. I've enjoyed every moment of it. And I don't even really know why. I think there's something about it that is, I think it's because, comparing it to the American one, because it's so British. I mean, it's, mm. it's co-hosted by Alan Carr and Graham Norton and people like that, who both of whom I actually really like. Um, yeah. But also the fact that all the humour, you saying before about how in like years and years, for example, there's little drops of queer humour that are dropped in, you know, queer culture humour in there. It's all British humour dropped in and out of this. You know, it's all British queer humour that ends up being dropped in and out or, or random references to very British memes or whatever else mm. that I therefore find really relatable. And it doesn't have the polished sheen of the American one. Mm. It does feel like all the BBC three thrown together reality shows, that kind of sheenless thrown together in a week kind of attitude. And I actually really enjoy that about it. And, and there's something about it that's made me really happy, I think. And um I would say I'm really grateful for it's for discovering actually that I enjoyed it and giving it another chance because I still don't like the American one. I tried the new season of that at the same time because I thought maybe my opinions have changed. I didn't. I hated it. So mm. I really do just like the UK one. Um, but I would I would say it's actually worth a go for many people. I think it's really good fun. Yeah, well, I'm completely agnostic on Drag Race and on those housewives that they all love. I sort of feel like Helen Keller at the well <laughs> trying, to com- trying to sort of communicate with the people that, you know, are constantly running on of Real Housewives and Drag Race. I haven't seen the UK one, but I must. I mean, it sounds it sounds thrilling. I mean, I love I really kind of- I would give it a go. I genuinely think you should watch- Well, so, I know it's funny. Somebody somebody asked me, um, I mean, I obviously know kind of Snatch Game and the lip syncing in this, but somebody asked me on a question on, because um, I often do tragic questionnaires mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, offload on kind of a random subject, but they asked me who would I do if I was on it? And I said, well, of course, Miriam Margulies, because, you know, she has this wonderful uh, enfant terrible, innocence and candor and you know says the, well even though I've said quite appalling things today but um I just love that and someone said oh well somebody did do her and I said oh well there you are you know it's and you know people like Miriam Margulies people like Kim Woodburn the kind of you know British people that mm. you, you do you do just um you know, it's like that that wonderful account um Love of Huns do you know that one? Oh, I love Love of Huns yeah even I well I, I don't I don't follow them but I kind of occasionally look at it but um and they've made such an empire out of it the person oh my that gosh it. I did not so I followed them when they had like they probably had the same kind of following as Dublin Zoetrope does and I always assume they did and I know in Dublin's Dublin Zoetrope and they have proper marketing camp like I know with it. well 
well, Dublin's Zero Trope is completely stagnant. I, I haven't probably gotten really many followers since maybe last summer. And then you see sort of somebody plagiarizing one of my posts, but they make it, you know, somebody else instead of Glenn. And they have like... Do you mean Reese Witherspoon plagiarizing your No, no, that was a joke. Because that was funny. When that that saga really, (laughs) that made my whole week that week. That really did take Excuse me. No, um, that was it. That was a joke. And people thought I was being deadly serious. And I felt so guilty. And all I was afraid of was that, you know, she was going to... You know, come for me. I want a Twitter spat. I want an Instagram spat with you and Reese Witherspoon. I think that would be. Weird. I know. No, it was completely. It was completely made up. Now, if there wasn't, well, I don't. <laughs> well, I don't know. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. The thing about it is, I think Dublin Zootrope is such an awful name. I mean, it's never going to have. It's it's going to, I think, maybe have fifteen thousand max, and that's where it's going to stop. I think it has about twelve now. But um, I don't know. I'm as I said, I. I I really ought to really use my real name because people think that is my name and I can't bear that. Well, I do. No. I did. I, I won't lie. I did originally think your name was actually Dublin Zoe Trope, which I thought was a bizarre name. I mean, imagine pouring holy water into that a child <laughs> with that name. But uh, yeah. And then the, well, the only thing is that it would be nice if it was sort of, I always think a headline, you know, Miss Zoe Trope died today. <laughs> Or sort of uh, Miss Oatrope was found stealing wigs or something. It would be something so <laughs> awful that I'd be in the news for. Oh, I do wish. I do wish. <laughs> oh, so funny. Well, thank you very much for our conversation this morning. It has completely brightened my day and I've thank really you. thoroughly well, I, enjoyed it. I hope I haven't. Uh, I hope I had a few interesting things to say and wasn't just bleating on. Many, many interesting things. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by the electrifying Emma Thorpe, our artwork is by the scintillating M. Jenkins, and our producer is little old me. We'll see you next week for the final episode of the series. <laughs>